0: at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders.
1: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the CC Podcast Conversations. Today you're going to hear an interview with myself and S.H. Van Ho, Sylvester, Sly. That's what I call him at least. <laughs> yeah, Van, everyone calls him Van. Everyone
2: calls him Van, yeah, that's how you know him. Everybody calls him by half of his last name, but whatever. That's, that's how he goes, so...
1: Uh, I think I said this, but I had always known Van, obviously, as a funeral director. I was custodian at the church, big church that had a lot of funerals. And one of our jobs was to run sound and video for funerals and weddings. Sure. So I saw him on the job all the time and seemed like a nice guy. I never had the occasion to meet him professionally. Mm -hmm. You know, no one in my family had died that he did the funeral or anything. Yep. And he just seemed like a good guy who was very businesslike had high expectations for what the custodians provided at the church, (laughs) um, but never really got to know his heart. And -hmm. so one of the things I appreciated about this interview is hearing more of his story and the heart behind how he viewed his service as a funeral director as service to the Lord.
2: Yeah, that's. I think that's one of those professions. um, It might be kind of hard to make friends. I I mean, wouldn't you think it? Because, you know, other times you— you kind of, you meet people through the course of your, of your professional employment or your job. Um, that's not somebody you're ever going to be like, Oh yeah, he ran a heck of a funeral. Uh, I'm going to call that guy up, see if we want to go have coffee or something, you know, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's not really how that goes. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, uh, I loved having that insight too. Um, I had known him, um, you know, my dad was a pastor here at the same church uh, that Matt was custodian uh, so I had gotten to know him a little bit, same, same kind of thing, uh, a little bit of chit chat here and there, but not, not knowing him. Um, and then when my dad passed away, uh, in, in 2004 and, um, and you know, Van did all of the, the funeral work for that and, and was, you know, of course very supportive and very, uh, good to our family. And, and so, you know, got to know him a little bit more through that, but it, it this, this interview I think is, is just fascinating, uh, to kind of, get in the mindset of of what goes on with with that kind of a a profession Um, because that's not something I think a lot of people really think about.
1: One of the things that was crazy, we talked offline quite a bit, Mm -hmm. and he told me some stuff when we weren't recording that he didn't want to talk about when we were recording. One of the things that I wish I would have brought up because I know he would have talked about it was way back when he opened and owned his first couple funeral homes. I think it was like in Dow's, Iowa or something like that. He had the only car that could haul a stretcher and so he was the ambulance service right and the funeral director and he told me that there were times when he'd go out to a car accident scene yeah on an ambulance call and end up back at the funeral home like right how crazy is that
2: right yeah it's that's it's it's a different world and it's hard to think about in terms of of what it's like now versus uh what it was like back then and especially you know being rural iowa and and you know you don't you don't necessarily know if there's a uh, hospital close enough to get to some of those people and you know i'm sure that even once there was once there were ambulance uh calls being made he was still probably the closest one and i'm sure at times had to step up and be the one to to get there first and get somebody to a hospital
1: the other thing that struck me about this interview which i just laughed at and hopefully van doesn't mind me saying this but if you ever saw him like, when he was still working, and he didn't retire till, yeah, just a few years ago. Right, Fairly old for a non-retired funeral director guy. Yeah. But this guy was dressed to the nines all the time. Always, yeah. Suit, tie, I mean, just tight, crisp. Yep. You know, just looked like he was a banker yeah. 24-7. Even if he wasn't on the job, if I saw him at Hy-Vee, if I saw him at Walmart, he's dressed in a suit and tie. Yeah. So I was absolutely shocked when we had our kind of pre-interview meeting. He came into the office, and he's wearing sweatpants and a flannel shirt. I was just like, Van, you doing all right? (laughs)
2: Because I've never seen him
1: like this. He said, retirement's been very good to me. I
2: always kind of assumed he wore a tie with his pajamas, you know. But but no, that's – he was – and he was so gracious to come in and, and, and talk through, you know. Um, he obviously didn't give away any any uh, you know private matters or anything like that, but but just to kind of get into so his own mentality and his own mindset and some of those things and and be vulnerable, um, I, I really appreciated that. I thought that that was oh, that he was didn't great. want to
1: talk about this, um, but he told me a couple stories, and one of them had to do with a very good friend of he and his wives mm-hmm. who passed away, and he gets the call in the middle of the night, and he goes over to the house. And the conversation that he had with the very, very fresh widow right. uh, was just like, man, I can't imagine no. the life of a funeral director in some of those scenarios. Oh
2: gosh, no, and and particularly in that case when you know it's somebody that he's a friend of too, and mm-hmm. trying to trying to be both a friend and you know be professional because that's part of your job too, and and just uh, just the the. You know, it's stressful enough to deal with death on a daily basis. And and I just, yeah, the way that he handled it is remarkable. Very I mean, joyfully, yeah. not
1: depressed, viewed himself as an agent of the Lord, mm-hmm. doing the Lord's work. And uh, I think everyone's going to enjoy this. I certainly enjoyed it. And, yeah. And I know it meant a lot to him and his family because maybe some of this stuff never been recorded before. But
2: Yeah, yeah. I think everybody who's listening is going to uh, really appreciate it as well.
1: Thanks for tuning in, guys. everybody. Today, I am really excited to bring you a guest who has been on my mind for more than a year. Today, we're going to talk with Sylvester Van Hove. Van, thanks for being with us.
3: You're very welcome. Glad to be here.
1: So this all started uh, more than a year ago. And Van, I don't even know if you remember the phone call, but you had called me just after I started as the director of Christian Crusaders around January of 2020. And you were asking a question about a donation that you had made to our ministry. And I was aware that you had recently retired. We hadn't talked for a while. And so I asked you how retirement was going. We must have been on the phone for five or 10 minutes. And the one takeaway, I don't remember much else of what you said, but I remember you saying very specifically that it's very clear to you that in your career as a funeral director, God used you to do his work. And I just thought, man, that's really great for somebody. We hear that from pastors a lot uh, or ministry people. Of course, they feel like God's called them to do this ministry. Mm-hmm. But to hear just a regular guy with a regular job, or maybe not such a regular job, um, have such a strong sense, I thought, man, we need, to, we need to put Van in front of our audience and just learn a little bit about his life, about his career. And as I thought about it more and more, I thought, man, a funeral director, now that's, that's kind of unique. And I thought there would be another appeal, besides hearing your story of how God has used you, just this idea. I think people wonder, what the heck would somebody want to be a funeral director for? This just seems like a job that not many people would want to do, that would be depressing. And I knew that you'd be comfortable talking about some of those things. So I'm really, really excited to have you here. The people are going to be uh, blessed by the conversation that we're going to have. Right off the top, I'll just introduce a little bit of how we got to know each other. I grew up at the same church that you were at in Cedar Falls. And uh, when I was in college, I went to the University of Northern Iowa. I was custodian at that church, Nazareth Church. And one of the jobs that we had as custodians was to run the sound system and the video recorder for weddings and funerals. And so we were obviously always cleaning the church up preparing for funerals, but we were in the sanctuary, kind of working with you a little bit. You'd send us on little errands to go get this or go get that. And uh, so we learned really quickly that when uh, Sylvester Van Hove is in the church doing a funeral, you do whatever he asks you to do, because it's going to go well for everybody if that's the case. And uh, it was a pleasure and a joy to get to know you through that um, interaction, and then uh, just as I've watched you, as you've handled the funerals of many people, friends and family members throughout my life have watched you uh, perform your services with excellence. And I've gotten a lot of feedback. I told people that I was going to be doing this interview one of the most common things I heard from people was, you know, when my mom died or when my sister died or whatever the situation was, and Van Hove did the funeral. He always made it so comfortable, and I think that's really quite a a testimony for you. One other thing I'm going to say before I before I ask a question and get you talking, because the goal is for me not to talk the whole time, but you to share some of your story. You're very clear about this on the phone with me when we first talked a year ago, and since we've talked in preparation for this this interview, um, you're just very clear. You've said it uh, over and over. Uh, you'll get ready to tell a story and you'll say, I say this with all humility, or you'll say another, another thing that I wrote down over and over. I've been very blessed. God has been very good to me. And so I just want to say at the beginning, I want to give you permission to tell your stories without feeling like you're bragging without feeling like you're glorifying yourself. You have a very clear Uh, understanding of your position in relation to god and you know that he's god and you're just a guy who he used very humble about that i think that's really cool but i don't want you to feel guilty if you have to say anything that sounds like you're tooting your own horn we know that you're not tooting your own horn and uh we appreciate that so with that all said as introduction um Tell tell me a little bit about your family of origin. I thought when you described this to me when we talked the other day, it was kind of interesting to understand the early years. Grew up in a big family on the farm, and uh, and how some of that played into how you are a compassionate guy.
3: Yes, it's, uh, it's very it is interesting. I uh, was born and raised on this particular farm. I have a twin sister, uh, who she and I are and one more sister are the only ones that are. Living, that the rest there were nine of us, and uh, but uh, our work on the farm was shared by everybody. My dad came to this country at the age of fourteen, and uh, from Germany, and he was a very hardworking man, a very God-fearing and love, God-loving man, and uh, I think of that often in my life. Always shared that, and he was brave, and he spoke of loving jesus and in our home, it was every day, morning, and night we'd never begin or end a day without prayer and reading of the Bible and uh many sometimes we sang too, because my dad loves singing, and uh, so we would it was just a worship time, and I, I think of that many, many, many times, and uh, we'd get up early in the morning and and uh, have our devotions and prayer, and then we all had our chores that we had to do a responsibility. And it was like from milking cows to feeding pigs and feeding the cows, gathering the eggs, everything that was done is all done by hand, but it was done with everybody's love and caring for one another, and we'd help one another. Then off to school we would go. But with all of this, I always remember that it was so important to me as even a young boy that I walked close with God. And uh, prayer prayer is a very important part of my life. And I think about the spare time we had on the farm. We could do things that with our hands and and there was time while we were doing these things that there was also time to be praying and worshiping God and thinking about how great He is. Sometimes I think that, you know, we worked so hard and we were lived on the farm and we were the poorest people in the world, but when it really comes down to the real greatiness of all this, we were so poor we didn't know how rich we were. Mm. I mean, first of all, we were rich— because we had Jesus in our life, and then, of course, our hard work. I went on to high school and and, and uh, continued to, of course, do our work on the farm. But in the meantime, while I was in high school, I had a teacher there that had a father in Chicago that worked in a funeral home, and he talked about that a lot. And he was very compassionate in that. And I was brought up in a family where there was compassion for everything. There was uh, abuse was not really accepted. And uh, I always, I liked that. And for some reason, the funeral service was something that I thought about, but knew nothing about. And got a little more knowledge of it, of course, from Mr. Metcalf. But uh, uh, until I was a senior in high school, I (laughs) didn't think that I could tell my father and mother that I wanted to be a funeral director because I didn't know how they would handle that.
1: The expectation was that you would work on the farm.
3: Uh, That's right, and be a farmer myself because my brothers all became and remained on the farm. And when I told my mom and dad that I was wanting to go into this profession. My dad said to me, well, I knew you didn't want to be a farmer.
1: <laughs> Let me so, stop you right there. And and when you told me this, you told me a little bit of this story earlier. And I three things I picked up on um, out of your early years. One is, I, I love the picture of your dad leading family devotions morning and night. I mean, that is, such a stable and solid home, and I wish more of that was happening today. I agree, but that really laid the groundwork for your faith um, Number two is you 're on a farm and you 're taking care of animals and i 've got a couple daughters that love animals and and i, I don 't particularly love animals mm. but but I notice in the girls that they have just a they have a compassion, they have a softness toward animals, and I think that carries over to their view of the world, their view of other people. And then um, the other side of that is when you're on the farm raising animals, you're not just doing it for fun, you're doing it to live. Mm-hmm. And so you're very familiar with the life and death cycle. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, do you think any of those three things, um, have you thought about them playing a role in shaping who you are to become what you became?
3: I think so. I've never dwelled on that so very much because I think sometimes when you're in that environment every day, all day long all week long it becomes a part of your life and uh, to me uh, loving and being concerned and compassionate was a very big, important part of our life and our family And, uh, uh, and to this day I just, I do have a lot of respect for animals and I sometimes think that well we took very good care of them and and um but it, it was it could be part of the contributing fact that i was compassionate about those things and
1: so uh, this is maybe not a fair question do you think you you have more of a softer side than your other siblings
3: no i don't think so i think uh, we all have our own personalities mm-hmm. and uh uh I think that all of us have always been very kind. We've been kind to one another. We've had a, a family of nine children and there's not been any problems between any of us. Hmm. We always get along very well and and that was something that uh if there was uh, some trouble that as we were kids growing up, we, my dad got to the bottom of it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand right that. away. And uh it taught us respect mm-hmm. for others and for one another.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, why did your parents name you Sylvester? Where did that come from?
3: Well, there was um, a cousin that I have that I had living in Germany, and his name was uh, um, Sander. And I don't know how the Sylvester thing came in, other than the fact my twin sister's name is Sylvia. Oh, okay. And so I think... Uh, Whichever one of us had been given the name of what we were called, I think then the next, well, if he's going to be a Sylvester, then she will be a Sylvia. And so, and it was kind of a unique thing, I think, that uh, that we had those names. When I,
1: hear, when I hear Sylvester, I automatically think Italian. Maybe that's because of Sylvester <laughs> Stallone. And then when I hear Van Hove, I think Dutch, but you're neither. You're, you're German.
3: I am German. My father came directly from Germany. He was uh, born in uh, at emden germany which is right along the ocean between the ocean between holland and germany mm. and uh, i think somewhere along the line we became vans but uh but my relatives that still live there are called van and uh, and so our name really is in germany van but back to America we came. Yeah, we became Van. And I think some of that happened when my dad came through Ellis Island mm-hmm. because he had to leave a very uh, detailed information about himself. When we were there some years ago uh, visiting Ellis Island, I checked his records and got copies of everything, and it told all about his family. Hmm. And uh, and and on that it did say Van Hove, but. Um, hmm. But I I really, it's being Holland being there. But I don't know when we, Dad came over here, how this became Van Hove. But it's it's too a good name. Yeah, that's
1: (laughs) good. You've done your best to maintain that. Yeah. Uh, So tell me a little bit. You said you got to the end of your senior year of high school, you had this teacher who had a, a, a connection to a funeral home in Chicago. I remember you telling me that at one point you were thinking you knew you weren't going to farm. Your dad knew you weren't going to farm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think you noticed that made him realize you weren't going to farm?
3: Well, I, I didn't have quite the interest and the ambition that my brothers did. Mm-hmm. And um, it just wasn't there.
1: Yep. Sometimes you got it. Sometimes you don't. Right, right. right. And so uh, now help me clarify this. At one point you wanted to go into ministry and you, you kind of went down this road of, Toward funeral funeral service, but then you thought about being a pastor and you didn't want to do funeral service. T- tell about how that all ironed out, and you ended up in the funeral service on the other end.
3: Well, getting out of high school, then I, um, and going through high school and before I entered, actually I, I had the ministry in mind, and uh, and it was something that I had a lot of interest in, and uh, but I became interested in the funeral service because of this teacher that I had and, uh, it, and my dad following up with an interest in to help me. In fact, mom and dad gave me guidelines on how we could get things pointed out for, I did not have any experience, but they helped me through a friend of theirs, a funeral director to, um, get me a job in Sioux City, Iowa. And I worked there at that funeral home for about a year and just gave me experience of what that was. I had to come back home during the Korean War and help my dad on the farm. And that, of course, I couldn't get out of there fast enough because I didn't want that. (laughs) But anyway, it was a good experience. But then when I went back to work, uh, I, I went to serve my apprenticeship, which was part of the education of becoming a funeral director back in those days. And uh, I worked for a funeral home in Elgona, Iowa for 12 months. That was the time period for an, uh, an apprenticeship. and um, And he was a very kind man and was a very kind and loving funeral director. And I always thought he was a great mentor for me. And From there, I had to go on to college to a mortuary science class, and I went to St. Louis, Missouri. This was a nine-month course. And then we would take our state boards, and we would then be able to continue our education through another year's apprenticeship. And um, after doing that, I went back to Algona and worked for Charlie because he was not only my teacher, but he was, uh, he became a very good friend and and caring person for me. And um, after I got my license, I, before I really received them, I kept thinking, did I really give myself a chance to go into the ministry? Mm. Did I let the other overpower me? Because I knew a little more about it, but I knew much about ministry and the fact that church was our number one thing in our home mm-hmm. and uh so i um decided then that after i got my license i would go to wordbury college and um and i went to school in st louis with a um, fellow director's son from uh Waverly. and when he heard that i was coming to um, Mortbury College, he called me and said that he wanted me to come and work for him because he was in desperation for a licensed funeral director. And I quickly told him that I was not interested because I had this the ministry in mind and I wanted to give that its total um, um, time. And um, so... I had already rented an apartment, and uh, of course, at my age it was better that I just lived off campus. And then, um, two weeks later, he called me again and he said, "Van, you you have to come and work for me because I just am, I'm so desperate in need of someone, and I know you and I know what you can do and what you will do." And I and I said. James, please don't call me again, because I am not coming to work for you. And uh, But he did not leave it alone, and he got back to me again within a couple of weeks and said that I had an apartment rented. And he said, well, we have an apartment in the funeral home that can be yours, and you'll have a wage, and we'll respect your time in college, and I just need you. And... And all this time, I was praying about guidance on this, and uh, and I thought very much about it and talked to God about it, and we decided <laughs> decided that I would go to work for Jim, and uh, and it was the thing that I think helped me to want to become a funeral director because I could see where I could work with people and help people in a time of need and show them God's love and concern and hope. And um, it was uh, the compassion that I could give the people was something that was beginning to interest me more and more. And so I then went to work for them for three full years and in the meantime got married, and then my wife and I... um, Bought a funeral home in Dallas, Iowa, and one at Latimer.
1: Did you finish your college degree, or did you just never— I just
3: went for one year, huh. because I knew then I would—this um, is what I wanted to do. Amazing. And I just felt that God did guide me in this these directions, and, and through the time that I was there, it was a, a part of my life to make a decision to um, go one way or another.
1: It's amazing. I don't know if anybody who who's going to listen to this will be in the middle of struggling to discern what God's calling them to do in life. But I think the way you described it, you know, there weren't any lights in the sky. There wasn't any clear, clear answer, but you just had to discern and pray and uh, make the next best decision. And the Lord just kind of through circumstances and through, you said his name was James, mm-hmm. calling you again and again and again, <laughs> and uh, finally got you where he wanted you to be. We're going to continue with this story, but I want to quickly promote one of the, you can grab a drink if you want to while I'm doing this. Okay, I'm going to quickly promote one of the ministries that we partner with, and that is the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. Many of you are familiar with the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. It's been around since 1922. We're going to celebrate our 100th anniversary, our 100th gathering this summer. And uh, we'd invite you to go check out details about that at cedarfallsbibleconference.com. We've got a big day of celebration for our 100th coming up on May 15th. That's a day we're going to have a a concert with Michael W. Smith. There's going to be a 5K. There's going to be a disc golf tournament. But our 100th annual conference will take place Saturday, July 31st through Saturday, August 1st. So if you're interested in that, join us at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, and we're thankful for their partnership in ministry. So there you are. You met your wife in Waverly. You're pretty much, you got both feet now in the the funeral business, and then you moved out to Dow's and bought a bought a funeral home in Dow's, picked up another one in Latimer, which is a nearby small town. Mm -hmm. And uh, now things are moving forward.
3: Yes. And um, we were very happy in Dow's. It was a very nice community. And we had had, uh, a good feeling of being there and people wanting us. And, uh, uh, but... We could see what was happening to a smaller community, and our children were still just being elementary, and uh, they were very smart little girls, and uh, we wanted a good education for them. So, out of the blue, someone came to me, and I don't remember who, and said, uh, "Did you realize there's a funeral home for sale in Cedar Falls, Iowa?" And I said, no, I don't. I'm really not familiar with the funeral homes there. And he said, well, I think if you're kind of wanting to um, move somewhere, that's a wonderful opportunity for you and Wanda. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that is a step that, I'd <laughs> that God is really going to have to walk very close with me because that's more than I didn't think I was able to do all of that. So... I did call these people, the Doll family, and uh, they were willing to sit down with me. And uh, I had absolutely never seen those people before, nor they had seen me. And yet we met several times, and uh, they called me one other time just to come and visit with them some more. And um, they said to me one day that... Uh, They were wanting to sell the funeral home to me. And I just praise the Lord. It was just something that I just, um, I didn't believe that something like that could ever happen. Uh, Because even leaving Dallas was hard for us because uh, we were loved there. And uh, there were many people there that said, you can't do that to us. We can't get along without you. They just appreciated us. And I say this very humbly as a funeral home director, yep. I, that uh, I serve the people well. And um, and you get to know people very well in funeral service. So in the smaller community, even there, I think sometimes it was a little more personal Uh
1: Stop yeah. a second and, and and explain that a little more. You said you get to know people well in the funeral service. Are you are you alluding to the idea that you're you're walking with these people through a very vulnerable and hard time, and so you you develop a really close bond?
3: Yes, that is. Uh, if you're listening to them and you feel their emotions, you um, you you create a bond that that is I really can't describe, but I can just say this that through all the years that and i would serve families and and when it was my time to go home at night and relax and be with my family i could set my business apart from my life and not and i say that with kindness but i had a family a loving family and it was just something that um, I prayed that God would take care of the situation, through the night, but I was always available, always mm-hmm. available. But I didn't let these emotions and grief overpower me mm-hmm. so that I couldn't live a normal life. Mm-hmm. And I always give God the praise for that mm-hmm. because uh, I needed to live a life too. But my important part of my life was living for my funeral service and for my people that i served Mm
1: -hmm. um so you're over in dow's you you built another funeral home in latimer i remember you telling me and your girls are young you get this opportunity to move to cedar falls there were several people i think you told me interested in buying that funeral home but for whatever reason they picked you the providence of god and and so here you are in cedar falls so sometime around this age one of the questions i had is do you think that your wife or kids were ever viewed or treated differently because they were uh the son, the daughter or the, the husband of a funeral director, do you think it would have been different for them if they'd have been the son of a plumber or a banker or some other, what I'll call a normal job?
3: I th- think that they were, <clears throat> la- there was a respect to them for their dad doing what he was doing. And um, they respected that. And they, um, they were kind to my children. And, and yet I, I, I don't think it made any difference, really, in that respect, because the children appreciated me being the funeral director that I was, and um, a loving and kind father. My family was always very important to me, and is very important to me. But I I think my children felt very comfortable with me being a funeral director and uh, I being their dad. hmm
1: Um, have you ever had an awareness uh, that you do kind of a strange or unique or a weird job? I mean, has that ever landed on you? Like this is unique or do you just think, well, this is what I do and other people do other things and there's nothing abnormal about being a funeral director.
3: Well, that's probably how I look at it, that it's, it's my job. That's what I've chosen to do. And, um, I don't look at it as abnormal. I look at it as if a, a, something that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And um we need people that really are sincere in doing this work and uh, are God-fearing, and loving people. Mm-hmm. That's very important and I felt that um you no, know, I never put myself as on a pedestal something that I was doing something better in my life that and somebody else mm-hmm. I was just appreciating being there.
1: There is a uh, There's a great theological doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And the idea is that everybody, in whatever vocation they're in, can be a priest, can be a representative of God to the world, can be an ambassador for Christ to the world. And one of the things I love about your story, especially since you talk about wanting to consider going into ministry— and almost like when you started to go into f- being being a funeral director, you weren't sure if you'd given ministry a fair shake. And so you wanted to explore that. And it was almost like, um, I'm maybe putting words in your mouth, but it was almost like you were thinking at that time, ministry may have been the better calling. But what you've learned over the course of your life is that God can use you as a minister in the funeral service, uh, maybe more powerfully than in the ministry, because he designed you this certain way with these abilities, with this personality, with these gifts. And and he's used you in this area of funeral service instead of this area of ministry. But when you're pursuing that as a man of God, as a follower of Christ, it really is ministry,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? And, okay. and maybe even more uniquely ministry than what you would think of as a pastor. I mean, you're doing a lot of pastoral stuff
3: people would do expect a pastor to be a pastor and uh, preach the word of god and uh, serve them as they are to be served from a church and a pastor but i don't think that they realize that being a funeral director can be a big part of that as well and working through their grief mm-hmm. and um and to me every call I went on, I always prayed for guidance and help to be with my family that I was going to be serving. Mm -hmm. And as I would meet with them at, at um, times for preparing for the funeral and so forth, I, um, prayed that God would guide me and help me in working with these people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was always there. I, um, I just feel that um, being—to me, it also gave me—to me, it was an important part to serve Jesus in other people's lives. Mm -hmm. That's great. uh, Uh,
1: What a testimony. So uh, you told me you've been involved personally in at least 5,000 funerals, and those were ones that you directed, you think?
3: I would say, oh, yes, I would – no, I didn't direct that many, but I've been involved with that, that figure plus probably more uh-huh. because I've been in the funeral service since 1950 to 19 uh, – or almost 2000. And um, it's it's a, a lot of families that we served. And my serving them personally, I, I, I'd say probably – where I was in charge of more, it was more. I I would say between two and three thousand or more. Mm-hmm. You know, I it's, I've never you know until you presented that question to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never ever gave that any thought. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, it was just it was my work. I never, you know, it, it, to total to, to, to that all up through all these years is is kind of sometimes mind boggling
1: <laughs> so over the decades you just retired in what 2017 I, I, is
3: that right in 2019
1: 19 okay
3: yeah
1: so you had a good 69 year run is that right yeah that's incredible so how has our how has our society's dealing with death changed over the time of your career how have funerals changed what, what's your perspective on that
3: Well, I think sometimes death is looked at differently today than it was years ago because um, when a death occurred in a family even 50, 60, 70 years ago, that was uh, a real tragedy to many families. And, um, And they had difficulty with dealing with that. And the funeral director, I don't think broaden his knowledge and helping them as much with the love of God as he he did, but he didn't portray it.
1: Didn't express it.
3: Didn't express it enough. But it was, yeah, people relied very much on him. But today, I think uh, death is still a very sad and hard situation. And for many families, that's, uh, it's, very difficult for them to step forward. But, you know, God gives strength and power for this, and it it does help to believe and trust in God. And I've had people, I, this is, as I say, in humility, I've had people <clears throat> say to me that they would never have been able to walk through this Accepting this death, if they hadn't had me to help them, hmm. and I, I just loved them, and cared for their need, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I just did what I felt was necessary.
1: Didn't feel special to you. You were just doing what you was, were supposed to do. That's right.
3: It's doing what I want and uh, what I wanted to do and needed to do.
1: Yep. That's that's phenomenal. And that's really a testament. Any one of us that's a follower of Christ, if we just do what we're supposed to do in whatever God's called us to, he will use that to bear amazing fruit, won't he?
3: Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, um, like even being a farmer and, uh, you know, regardless or mechanic or electrician, there's a a duty to do it right and do it to the fruit for God Mm -hmm. and to help other people because we do look for other people for help and things that are beyond us.
1: We're going to get into some more uh, details about your career. I want to do another promotion quickly. Uh, The CC podcast Conversations. That's what this podcast is that you're listening to, the CC Podcast Conversations. It's one of three podcasts that is published by the uh, Christian Crusaders, Radio and Internet Ministry. The other two are the CC Podcast, Daily Dose Devotions. That is a podcast where we do a daily devotion from the Bible. Right now we're doing a Bible overview. As I record this today, we're in the middle of Ezekiel, and so we aren't even done with the Old Testament yet. We started in May of 2020. Today we're at the end of... March 2021, and we're just to Ezekiel. So we would encourage you to go to the CC podcast, Daily Dose Devotions, and join us. For those daily devotions, we also have the CC Broadcast. And the CC Broadcast is where we archive all of our weekly radio broadcasts. We have them archived all the way back to 2008. Eventually, we'll have them archived back to 2001. That'll include many sermons by Pastor Homer Larson, who was our preacher for 52 years. And you can find all of that, the CC Podcast, the CC Broadcast, and everything that we put out on our website at ChristianCrusaders.org. So, Check that out. Okay, here's what I want to talk about, Van. Kind of X's and O's, nuts and bolts. Um, just for people who are listening, and I'm curious myself, describe a typical process of your involve, involvement with a death and a funeral and a burial. Let's say somebody dies at home, and you you probably get a call in the middle of the night, and then what?
3: Well, when you get that call in the middle of the night, you get yourself moving, and you go to the residence. And uh, make sure that all the health care has been taken care of. And
1: time out one second. Let me ask you this: Do the people call you specifically at home, or is there an answering service that calls you
3: today? It's an answering service that calls the funeral home. But way back when I started, and the funeral home was called directly by a doctor or a nurse or a family member themselves. And um,
1: so, are uh, they? If it's a family member. Are they on the phone hysterical? Or? Some are.
3: Some have been. It's a, a point and they, they would say, oh, please come, please come. You need to, we need your help. But you, you need to make sure that a doctor or medical service has been uh, uh, notified and you move forward from that and you go to the family home and visit with the family a little bit and counsel them and tell them what the next steps are. And if this is in the middle of the night, you then set an appointment to meet with them at the funeral home, if it's at all possible, or wherever the it work, works out best for them, and uh, to organize and begin the funeral arrangements. And uh, And most people are very much at a loss as what to do because it's a new experience in their life. And so they are looking to the funeral director for absolute guidance in all direction. And that gets in the getting the obituary ready for the newspaper and other news media and um, um, getting uh, um, the funeral arrangements made, making um, connections and uh, arrangements with the uh, place of service and the ministers and music. and. So the let's ministry. back up. Let's back yes. up
1: to the night that the death occurred. Okay, you're at the home, you're consoling these people, you're helping them understand next steps. Eventually, you or you and one of your partners remove the body.
3: Yes, we'll do that before when we leave the home. We we take the the cot would be taken to the home, mm-hmm. and the body is taken with us.
1: So, how do you navigate a situation? And I've never really been in this situation myself, but I can imagine where. um Somebody, a loved one has died and the family is just being faced with this and dealing with this, you know, and it's very difficult and you need to kind of get things going. Like you can't be here for the next three days, Mm -hmm. um, waiting until they feel comfortable for their loved one to be removed. I'm sure it's difficult sometimes for people to give up the body of their loved one. And so how do you, how do you navigate, um, that delicate balance of wanting to be respectful of the emotions and the feelings of the family, but also you know that you need to get on with things.
3: Well, again, it's how you represent yourself to them that's very important. They're relying on you for complete guidance and direction, and you explain to them if there there are questions about it that will take the body with us to the funeral home, and we talk about the preservation or the embalming of the body and the care that we give it, and then they are—they keep looking for us for all directions. Mm-hmm. And, and we just listen. And uh, some people have gone through it enough to know what to expect. Mm-hmm. But it's different today than it was years ago. You know, years ago we would go to a, a resident more than to an institution to pick up a body. And so there, was, uh, there wasn't other staff people there to help. Mm-hmm. And they relied completely on the funeral director, and uh, it was uh, a period that it, you just walked with them closely, and they just stayed with you. I've had people walk with the body to the uh, to the car because mm-hmm. it was very hard for them to leave. Have them leave, mm-hmm. and uh, there's just many different ways that people react to this, but you have to be in tune to where they are mm-hmm. and. And listen, and there's many times that even after we have maybe taken the body to the car, that I would go back into the house and just visit with the family just a little bit before I left and explain to them Mm -hmm. where we were, what was going on, and I think that was always comforting. And they felt that that the funeral director cares when he does that; it's just not ripping that person away from them. Mm that there's a a concern in the care, that you feel that with what they're going through.
1: Mm -hmm. So the body goes back to the funeral home. Let's say this is 2 in the morning that you get Mm -hmm. the call. Are you back to the funeral home by 4 in the morning, do you think?
3: Oh, yes, probably, you know, within... uh, You go directly to the funeral home with the body, and you're probably there within an hour, depending on where the death occurs.
1: And then do you start the work of embalming right away? Yes,
3: yes, yes, if... We have the permission to do so. We start the work immediately. So if we got a call at 2 o'clock in the morning and we got back at the funeral home at uh, 3 o'clock, we would embalm the body and do all the preparations of getting the body prepared for embalming and to embalm it. And, uh, And then... Go home for maybe an hour or so for some rest. Mm-hmm. And How uh, long
1: does the embalming process take? Well,
3: typically? usually you figure a couple of hours, two hours, can be more, uh, depending on the, some complications that you might run into.
1: And at that time, all you're doing is replacing fluids, right?
3: Right. You're replacing the uh, fluids in the body, particularly the blood, with a preservation of, with formaldehyde mm-hmm. that preserves the body and keeps it from disintegrating and decaying.
1: So once you get done with that, then you can take a break and go rest.
3: Oh, yes, yes. And uh, But sometimes you didn't have time for that break because it was so close to the time that they wanted to come to see you. Mm. And you just, well, that night went by and you didn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask about that. Y- you funeral directors must have uh, creative ways to get your rest. I mean, um, are there any rhythms or any disciplines that you put in place? Are you You probably... Or sleeping sometimes in the middle of the day when you had a break. Uh or do you just how do how do you make up
3: for that? Well, you eventually just make up with it. I don't think that I really ever took a break in the middle of the day to rest because I was up all night. Mm-hmm. Maybe would have gone maybe would go to bed a little earlier than usual. Mm-hmm. But um you just go on and you do and particularly when you're young, you're strong and healthy and you move on to do those things.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: And uh things must be cared for and particularly when i was by myself in the business in my other town other communities i had to do all the work and uh and it was um, you just kept moving forward to get it done
1: so imagine that you go and pick up a body and embalm a body and then the next morning you might have a funeral of a totally different situation and so at some point, how many of these things can you handle at any given time, like two, three, four, and and, and still keep doing a good job?
3: Well, there are sometimes that that um, there are more than one or two, and you have to separate everything, and you and you have help, of course. Um, I just think that uh, it's amazing how you just move from one to the other, and there be times that when you have maybe two funerals in a day's time. You separate them enough, one maybe in the morning, one in the afternoon, so that you can give both funerals a uh, a sharing of your time and help to help with the families. Mm -hmm. I do want to back up to today's world with places (coughs) of death. Many, uh, because of hospice, Many people do die at homes today, but that's all well taken care of with those people. Mm-hmm. But there are many deaths that are that occur in the home or unattended. Mm-hmm. And a medical examiner needs to be called on those type of calls. And sometimes these a body is not released to the funeral immediately because pending to finding out the cause of death. So it can be sometimes several days before the body is embalmed or or really taken to the funeral. Uh, so they are, it's it's a different world in how things are done today. And yet many deaths occur at home attended. Mm-hmm. Majority do, but we have unfortunately the many things that happen that uh, that. Are very unsuspected uh, and i' not had no idea that that was going to happen, and the um, the the um, law comes involved in it, mm-hmm. and uh, and and they have the full say. So we call that a lot of times the, the medical examiner, and he is the man that we all listen to.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I remember you telling me that. If there's an autopsy or some some kind of thing that needs investigated where a body gets sent in Iowa, for example, down to Des Moines, mm-hmm. then they will call a funeral home in Des Moines to do the initial embalming. And so sometimes you're doing a funeral uh, for a body that is from here and is going to be buried here and a funeral service is going to be here. But they did the embalming because they were work doing their work down there.
3: It's an option that a funeral home has. <laughs> it's not that everybody does that but if depending on what's going on in your place of business and uh and that being there in the time of death as that is taking place we often like always like maybe let's have it done there at a funeral home and then we can go there to pick up the body
1: tell and me if, about tell me about um the difference in services from funeral home to funeral home to funeral home and um you know, you hear these stories. I remember a story out of Detroit where there's some funeral home where they, like, found bodies that had been in the cooler for years. Oh, or yeah. and, and they had charged these people for funerals. And they thought that the loved one was taken care of. But here they're stacked up somewhere. Obviously, that's horrible service. Um, and that would be hopefully an extreme example and an, and an outlier that's not normal. But... Um, what, what, what are some of the things that vary from, from shop to shop in terms of how the service is done better or worse or more um, thoughtfully or less thoughtfully?
3: Well, it all bases, it comes down to the basics of and anything that you do. If you want to do it right, you do it right from the beginning and follow the rules and regulations. And a funeral home or a funeral director that is concerned for his family that he's serving is going to do things properly. Mm-hmm. You don't want to stack up bodies. That's not going to help anybody. It's going to even make the job worse for the funeral home. And yet, I know we read about some of these things. But I think sometimes the news media has a good way of making this very interesting. It mm-hmm. Makes the story interesting. But there are people in the in the funeral world that are not. They should not be there mm-hmm. any more than there are people that are in the medical field and they should not be there. Mm-hmm. But they've gotten by and but then there comes a time they get caught up with as far as the law is concerned or whatever, and that's when the news media takes hold. But generally I would say basically the all funeral homes do things in a rightful in an upright position. upright. Order. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Another dynamic that I've been curious about as a funeral director, so you're sitting down with a family and you're planning out this service, um, and again, you're walking this this tightrope between wanting to be very sensitive to the wishes of the family, but then you know that there's typically a way to do things, like for instance, a, a funeral can't last three hours because... You've got something else to do at three hours from when the mm-hmm. funeral starts, or the preacher needs to get going, or we can't sing their eight favorite songs or play the entire CD stairway to heaven or something like that, mm-hmm. that meant something to this family. When you're when you're going through plans with them, how do you um on one hand, you know, give them uh creative license to do this in a way that honors their loved one, but on the other hand, kind of stays you know, between the general parameters of how a funeral should go, without getting too out of control.
3: Well, yeah, and this is one thing too that's very important. That uh, when we have a family come make funeral arrangements for their loved one, that we have the the pastor that will be doing the service is present with that, so he can give guidelines on what he feels, and he's more in charge of what's going to take place than we are. If he says the funeral can be eight hours and so forth, then okay. (laughs) (laughs) But they don't want it that way either. But, you know, sometimes a funeral service can be longer because of the music and so forth. But I think, again, we have to think about when these things happen, we have to think about the needs of the, the surviving family. They have a need of of um, their grief needs to have more time with things. Like some, you know, visitations, uh, they need more visitation time than others. Mm -hmm. But um, that is, most people want to do this in a very rightful way, Mm -hmm. and a a way that other people are comfortable as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, so I wonder if you have any, just in the whole process of, of funerals, whether it's the planning meeting with the family or whether it's when you pick a body up or when you get the initial call, whether it's the funeral, um, are there when, if you just close your eyes for a second to, and, and think about it, are there, are there moments that pop out like that was memorable or, oh yeah, I remember that. And maybe it's funny. Maybe it's outlandish. Maybe it's particularly moving, um.
3: Well, I guess I never have dwelt on that a whole lot, because <clears throat> everybody reacts differently to the loss of a loved one, and I've always respected how their reactions are. Mm-hmm. And you just take the moment, and I don't uh, make an issue about it. As I, I, nothing really comes up that I that that I feel that right now, but. Um, but there there are requests occasionally from people. They have Some people ask questions about what happens to the body, mm-hmm. and they are very interested in that. Um, um, I'm not really probably answering your question like you right. wanted it to be. That's all right.
1: I have a couple of things in mind that just I've seen by being around funerals and things. Okay. Um, I was at a funeral several years ago and uh, an, an elderly woman had passed away and her daughter was eulogizing her at the funeral. And her daughter was, you know, you could tell her daughter was kind of wild and crazy and but she was talking about she loved her mom, and her mom was great and all this stuff. And then she reaches down to her purse, which is by the podium, and she pulls out this miniature bottle of wine. And she goes, my mom always loved wine, and so this is for you, mom. And then she just pounds this miniature bottle of wine in front of the congregation. And it's kind of like, I remember when we walked out of that funeral, I went to the funeral director, who mm-hmm. I knew, and I said, uh, you approved that, right? And he's like, uh, no, we didn't know that was coming.
3: <laughs> yeah, most of the times you probably don't know that, and it's just as well that you don't <laughs> but you have to respect that to the point that that was an important part yeah. of her grieving to show that. Mm-hmm. And as strange as we might think that, mm-hmm. it was not something that was strange for her.
1: That's a great perspective.
3: And, um, and, and everybody grieves in their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been very careful not to criticize people. Yeah, uh, to others because of how somebody grieves because if you've not walked that walk mm. uh, it just um, isn't uh, it's just like uh, I was talking to a lady here within the last couple of weeks and I hadn't really ever met her before and uh, and she was working and we just got acquainted and just visiting and uh, the restaurant and and then she said, um, and I said, uh, I started the conversation. And I said, well, how are you today? And she said, oh, I'm not having a good day at all. And I said, oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And then she was very open out that it was the anniversary of her only daughter's death. Hmm. And um, and so, and she had tears and I sympathized with her and, you know, and you, you touch and you love, mm-hmm. you you. And um, and one of my things that I sympathized with her, and then I said, I have not walked your walk. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that is, what you're going through, but you're loved. Mm-hmm. And it is not a good time for you, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. And it's okay for you to cry. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, she needed to have someone. And, you know, I see this lady more and more, and she and I have really kind of become friends. And I sometimes think that that was fun. That my I wasn't criticizing her; I just listened. Yeah. And it was a bad day for her.
1: Yeah. For anybody listening to this, I mean, it's obvious why Van was such a great funeral director. You just listen to the way that you answer that question and and uh, let people grieve the way they grieve. You told me uh, a, a really cool story one time about when you had the funeral home in Latimer and uh, you used to stay the night there when you had a body Mm -hmm. and a father showed up. Can you tell that story?
3: Sure. It was um, a very tragic car accident. He was a very talented young man. He was in high school and uh, it was very hard for the parents and particularly for the father. And in the middle of the night, well, I was staying at the funeral home, the I heard someone at the door, and uh, I quickly got up and went to the door. My doors were locked. I'm a locker-upper. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he was ready to get in his car, and I called him by name and asked him what I could do for him. And he said, oh, I thought there was nobody here, and I would just like to come and just see my son and spend some time with him. And I invited him back into the funeral home and I told him to take all the time that he wanted. And I closed the door to where I was in my bedroom. And he was there for several hours. And uh and he just wanted to be with his son. Hmm. And uh and I'm sure that helped him and he did thank me several times about that, that he didn't he was surprised that he couldn't get in there, but then understood why he couldn't and that I was doing my job of protecting Mm. and keeping things under control. But I, you know, it it just was part of his grief. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could catch up with my sleep another time. Mm. And uh, it it was okay.
1: That's awesome. Um, This is a book uh, where a guy named Ron Gruber writes a chapter. Ron Gruber <clears throat> was a member of the Sons of Silence, that motorcycle gang in Cedar mm-hmm. Falls. And he did a bunch of time in prison for murder. And now he's a believer. He he uh, gave his testimony at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference last year. And I was able to interview Ron in a podcast like this. People who are curious about that can find that on our website. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal interview. But Ron describes a situation before he knew the Lord, when he was in the middle of the gang and he was, uh, an enforcer, he was a one percenter. He was one of the big dogs in this gang. And so they would have a fallen brother who was shot or died or got killed in a Mm -hmm. a motorcycle wreck. And they would eventually be at the funeral home helping, um, prepare this person. And they would demand that they wanted to wear their patch and their leather, you know, biker gear that they wore because they're part of this gang he describes in here a confrontation that he had with a family member of one of the gang members. And I think the father of the gang member wanted him to be buried in a suit and wanted him to have a Christian funeral. And And Ron Gruber is in here telling his father, like, no, that's not who your son was. Your son was one of us, and he's going to get buried the way that we do this. And I, I'm imagining this all going on. In fact, I actually was picturing your funeral home because there's a decent chance you guys have handled some Sons of Silence funerals. Oh, Um how do you how do you manage dynamics like this where there is some kind of um confrontation, you know sometimes within families there's uh, some animosity or there's some drama, sometimes like a situation I'm describing with Ron Gruber, you know two people who have a say in how this plays out aren't seeing eye to eye. Um I mean you become Dr. Phil at some level <laughs> um, helping sort this stuff out. Talk about how that goes.
3: Well, one of the first things that you have to remember and that a field director's got to remember that, that the next of kin, as his father was, the next of kin of this boy, and he has the right to make the calls.
1: Hmm. Is, that, is that law
3: or well, is that just courtesy? Uh, it's courtesy and it could be a, a, a law pretty much. I would respect it as such, but mm-hmm. it's definitely courtesy. So if someone has a particular choice that is... Unusual and against the rules of majority of the people, you still have to listen to the next of kin. Interesting. And uh, so there are times that requests have been made by the next of kin that are contrary to everyone else's belief or feeling, but when, in all essence and down to the very nitty gritty, that person is the rule of that decision.
1: So when there's a flare-up in your office while there's preparations are being made for a funeral, um, I mean, do you just learn to look down at your desk and just kind of let this argument pass over? Or when do you interject yourself and try to iron it all out?
3: Well, you let the family and the people there work it out between themselves. And you don't get involved in it any more than you have to, because then you're beginning to take sides and you're in worse Difficult than any word to begin with. <laughs> but many times, <clears throat> excuse me, conflict comes out very open at the time of deaths and families. And uh, people are thrown together that have not seen one another for years because they've not had to. Mm-hmm. And now it's a death and they feel an obligation to be there to... <laughs> They're not supporting one another, but they're there to work out the problems between themselves, and it's very difficult, and you have to, you know, sometime, depending on what the situation is, there's sometime that a funerator may have to take a stand and a decision has to be made. My mom always said... (laughs) And, and she was such a fine Christian woman, and I don't know how she based this, but she said if there was family, if there's problems in a family, the devil works the hardest at that time in hmm. the death and to make things, to bring up things that shouldn't be brought up and hmm. and just makes trouble within the family. Mm-hmm. And I have seen difficulties in family, things that have been forgotten about or not, I guess they weren't forgotten about, but they're put on the shelf but now this brings everything together. Mm. And uh, they uh, I've seen people walk out away from one another during arrangements and uh, and during different things. But it's something, again, they have to work out between themselves. Mm. But you can help, I guess, if there is a way to help, but usually there is not.
1: Um, Want to touch on one more thing here, and then we 're going to get to some more personal or spiritual questions. Um, obviously, there are some unpleasant parts of this job, and when I mean unpleasant, I mean like physically unpleasant, like either odor or just a very gruesome situation um, i 've got a cousin who did very well in a cleaning business, and one of the reasons he did so well is because they had a biohazard certification that would allow them to come and clean up after a body had been found or even after a suicide or some murder or homicide. And he's seen some crazy things from that side of things. You've seen some really wild stuff. (laughs) Um, Like, I think that's the part that most people would look at your career and say, ah, I don't want to do that. Like, people don't always die in their beds (laughs) with their hands folded after they took a shower. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, they mostly don't, right? Right. They mostly don't. So, how do you navigate that? Some very unpleasant things, but at the same time, you want to be sensitive and respectful to the body, to the family. Um, Anything you want to share about that?
3: Well, the thing to me, I always say when you have something that is that you really is a kind of obnoxious or or disturbing in that respect, Mm -hmm. you want to get to the bottom of that and get that solved. Mm -hmm. In other words, if there's an odor, if there's a a bad position of the body or there's maybe a suicide, a horrible car accident, mm-hmm. you want to take care of covering that up as best as you can and work through it and get the results put together mm-hmm. so that then the body where there's odors and it's not, it's you want to get it to where it's got to be going so you can get those corrections made. mm mm-hmm. And you really, as a rule, only do something at the place of death that's just kind of contemporary. And when you get the body to the funeral home, then you can begin to do the things that are going to stop this from continuing to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the sooner you get things done that you don't like doing, Mm -hmm. the sooner you do it and get it behind you, the better it is.
1: That's a life lesson in addition to a funeral uh, director tip right
3: yeah yeah i have been in many situations that uh, have been very unpleasant and uh, but you work through it and you get working on it and get to the end of the situation so it becomes better
1: i would imagine that that family members or people who have watched you in those situations handle it uh you know, diligently and gracefully, I would guess that that leaves a mark on them.
3: There have been many times family members have been present in removing a body because of the circumstances. And mm-hmm. you do it with delicacy. You do it with respect. And you do it with uh, emotions that are, are good. Mm-hmm. And you just, you, because you know that when they leave and you leave with that body, that the thing that's gonna impress them the most is the fact that how that body was handled while they were standing there. Mm-hmm. And that's something that would be a long time for they, before they forget it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And many times this is the thing that is good about viewing a body. People have seen the last time they're loved when they died in a very horrible situation. Mm-hmm. But they view it in the casket or wherever, and they find it looking very nice. Mm-hmm. And that's the memory that we want to leave with the people, mm-hmm. and that's the memory that they want to leave with as well. That's good. I remember. I'll tell you this story. I had this was in before I moved here to Cedar Falls, and I was called to this farm. The man had died in the middle of the night. And the lady was, the widow was very nice to me and uh, had all kinds of questions and we made funeral arrangements and visited and in fact even through the funeral arrangements I found that my mother had, was somewhat of a relative of these people, you know. And we had a visit about that and everything else and the visitation came and um, and I thought he looked very nice. You always take You know, you have to be satisfied yourself that the body looked good. And she came and she said, she walked up to the casket and she said, doesn't look like him, doesn't look like him. And I thought, oh my goodness, really? And I tried to go up and talk to her about it and doesn't look like him. I don't like it, doesn't look like him. Well, I comforted her in the best way that it could but it wasn't that she left it alone with just criticizing to me and my work and so forth but everybody that came to the visitation when they'd walk up to the casket, she'd say now doesn't he look awful? He looks just awful. (laughs) And I just thought, oh my goodness, what is she doing? And people didn't know what to do either. And I was standing in the back of the chapel and Listening to all this, and somebody came up to me and said, "Well, then I know he, he looks wonderful, but no one has ever satisfied her with anything in life. So don't be, <laughs> don't feel bad." <laughs> well, that comforted me for a while, but I felt badly that she couldn't find comfort that he. But it, it didn't matter; it wasn't going to be. Mm. And when the funeral was over. I went to visit her one day, and I was hesitant. In fact, I think she asked me if I would come and see her, hmm. and uh, and I stopped in and visited with her, and then she talked about that, and she apologized for it, hmm. and uh, and it was part of her grief. Yeah, and it was just she didn't want to accept the fact that he had died. Yeah, and. uh so well, let's take it out in van, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and and well, I was the last person that was worked with things, so I I I felt very helpless. Mm-hmm. But again, at that time, I also learned that there's nothing you can say. Mm-hmm. Let her let it be, and just just. It'll all work out, and it did. And she became a good friend of mine. But uh, but you know, it's just at the time it was a, a very bad. I was a young funeral director. I wasn't hadn't had a whole many years of experience, and I've never and I've never had that ever happen again. Wow! And uh, but she was and and he had and he looked very nice, but she was insistent that he didn't interesting. Yeah. Uh,
1: um, I'm going to promote another thing quickly, and then we're going to turn the corner to these last set of questions. Uh just want to let everybody know that uh, Christian Crusaders has been around for 85 years. It's a radio and Internet ministry, and we are donor-supported. So uh, we don't get big checks from the government to put on podcasts like this. Um, people generously send in gifts periodically or monthly. Sometimes we get estate gifts and uh, that has helped us to sustain ourselves for now. We're going to have our 85th birthday this year, which is remarkable. And we want to continue to be a voice piece for the gospel on uh, our broadcast and with our podcast, with our daily devotions. Even this interview, I hope that you can see the spiritual value of it. Uh, a couple things. One is you get to hear somebody talk about how the Lord used them in their career and their vocation to serve him, and hopefully that will inspire others to view their vocation and the role that he has them in as a way that they can honor him and be ambassadors for Christ. Another thing is it gives us an opportunity. People are going to want to hear this interview with Van, and they've never heard of our Daily Dose podcast, or they've never heard of our weekly broadcast, and so they're going to hear about these, and maybe we'll pick some people up who will be listening to those things going forward, and they will be fed spiritually. So please join with us if you are so led, and you can find out how to give— Uh, by going to our website, christiancrusaders.org, or you can mail a check to Christian Crusaders at 7401 University Avenue, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613. So, Van, I want to talk to you a little bit about your emotions. I think a lot of people think, and I would maybe even think, uh, without having a prolonged conversation with you or without knowing you, that being a funeral director would just be a depressing job. I mean, why do you want to be around death and grief and mourning and sadness and loss? Um, But if it was depressing, I would imagine that you would have quit a lot earlier than 2019. So um, help us understand that. Uh, Is it depressing? And if it's not, why isn't it?
3: It is not depressing. I can, but I have a, I've been able to help people. And I'm concerned about people, and people need compassion and um they may not want to admit that, but they do and at a time of death they need compassion, and they need to know that they're being cared about and uh, to me um that's been the biggest success that I've had in my own feeling of my of being a film director, is being able to help people i get responses from them and saying that I could never have gone through this without you or they'll write letters or send cards to their funeral director and I've received hundreds of them and where they tell me have told me how wonderful it was that I was able to be with them and how they could find peace by my being there Mm -hmm. and all of those things and I say this in such humility that I don't not trying to put myself above anybody, but people need people. People need people that love God hmm. and they have to know that. And my feeling of really feeling good about the funeral service and is to be able to 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 witness my faith mm-hmm. and uh, my trust in God and my prayer life. And I just uh, I, I, just find that comforting for myself, but above all, it gives comfort to them, and that's what's important. Mm-hmm. I just feel that I've had a wonderful opportunity to serve Jesus in my lifetime. And he's, you know, I, I, I just—it's it, nothing that I have done. It's because God is God and God is good, hmm. and uh, and I just uh, thing that I probably miss most about the funeral service is not being able to be with my people. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying retirement. I've enjoyed every minute of it, but I miss people mm-hmm. and and um, uh, uh, people that are need the people that need. To know that Jesus loves them, mm-hmm. and uh,
1: that's awesome. Um, do you cry a lot?
3: I cry easy, but would, I would, don't. I don't cry a lot. No.
1: And so, um, would you say how, how often? Like, say, um, for every ten families who you serve, how many times do you think you shed tears over their loss?
3: Oh, I have done that many times. But you shed tears in a quiet manner. Mm -hmm. You just uh, you don't go on sobbing
1: privately or with them. Or
3: I I I would make no, uh, I have no problem shedding some tears with them if that. But I don't do that because uh, trying to make make me look good. It's It's not a show. It's 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 genuine. Yeah, it is. You feel there's there's sadness, and you. But you don't feel their sadness. You really don't feel their sadness because unless you stood there and been done this yourself, you don't know what it's like. But you feel bad and sad for them.
1: You've been around weeping people who've experienced loss a lot more than the average person. And so you must have thought about the the shortest verse in the Bible before in a unique way, which is that Jesus wept, you know, when when Lazarus (laughs) died. And what's always remarkable for me in that in that passage, it's John 11, I believe. Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few minutes. And so he's not weeping, I don't think, because of the loss that he feels in his brother Lazarus, because he knows Lazarus is going to be with him again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think his tears are weeping um, because of the pain that others are in. Have you thought about that text? Yeah.
3: Yes and no, but I appreciate you sharing that with me because that's really what it all boils down to. It is the tears that you that flow from you are sincere for those who are hurting, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, I've done that many times. But I would say a lot of times that I've done that, nobody really knows that I'm doing it. Yeah, because I, <laughs> but but I think it's okay if they did know it. Mm-hmm. Because um, but many you know uh, people are uncomfortable about other people crying, but I, I'm mm-hmm. not. I think tears are healing, mm-hmm. and it's one of the best things that grieving people can do to to heal their loss.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, a situation where you obviously have strong personal faith convictions about Christ, mm-hmm. about the Word of God? about the gospel, but then you're serving people who don't necessarily share those same convictions. And so you're trying to balance this, how do I shine the light of Christ? How do I be an ambassador for Christ? But these people over here are saying crazy stuff that's not true. It's not my place to step in and correct them because that's not what I'm here for right Mm -hmm. now. But have you ever wrestled with that? Like, when do you speak up? When do you stand down?
3: Yeah, many times. Because... You know, um, but I think you have to use good judgment and good thinking power when you when you do this amongst people. You have to do it at the right time. It's got to be the right time. But you you could speak. I could speak about my faith and the great power of Jesus, and I could have them turn against me. Mm-hmm. But I think I can. Until I can feel assured that they're going to listen to me, the best thing I can do is show my concern for them Mm -hmm. and my love for Jesus and that Jesus loves them. But I do not hesitate at all for anyone to tell people that God is good, Mm -hmm. God loves us, Mm -hmm. and I love Jesus. Mm -hmm. I don't don't have any trouble with that because that's an important part of my life. But... Sad to say, because of the world as it is, you have to figure out the right time to to do this. Speaking of faith, and and tr- telling them, "Well, trust in Jesus; everything is okay." Mm-hmm. You know, I, and so many times people say, "Well, he's in heaven now." <laughs> you know, and I'm not a judge. I I, right. do, I do not know what people the last minute of your life would they have repented and become a child of God mm-hmm. but you wonder sometimes that if they get to heaven then everybody should get there because yeah. it's it's not possible because then scripture isn't true. Right. But uh, heaven is there for those of us who want but if someone feels that they get comfort in that I would not dictate criticize that, but the only thing that I am bothered with that is that they feel that life goes on and they can do the same, and when they die, they're going to go to heaven too. Yeah. And in the meantime, nothing in the, their life has changed.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the the only way to heaven, this is my plug for the gospel in this podcast interview, the only way to heaven, according to scripture, is through faith in Christ, and it's not because we're better than people who believe other things. It's just because Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the only one who satisfied the righteous requirements of God's law. God demands perfection. And we're not perfect, but Jesus was. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, he offers us that righteousness that he lived so that through faith in him, we can stand holy and blameless before God. That's why uh, people who don't know Christ don't get to heaven because they don't have the righteousness of Christ Covering their sin. And uh, that's great. One thing we talked about earlier that I thought was uh, people are going to want to hear this because a lot of our listeners know Homer Larson very well. Mm -hmm. He was our radio preacher for 52 (laughs) years. He was a senior pastor here at the church for a long time. You obviously worked closely with Homer. You did many funerals with Homer. And one of the things you talked about is, and I know this from just personal conversation with Homer, he loved to preach funerals, which sounds really sadistic. Mm He didn't love that people are going through pain and loss and grief, but he loved the idea that there are going to be people in this congregation for this funeral service who do not come to church otherwise. And it was a great opportunity for him to clearly declare and proclaim the gospel, kind of like what I just tried to do. And he saw it as a great opportunity. You were lamenting how many of those opportunities are missed by preachers that you've Um, been around.
3: It's sad, sad. Yes, I have a big admiration for Homer for what he did when he had funeral services and the sermons. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving everybody the opportunity to become a child of God. And there are so many preachers that through the years that I've heard them preach, and eternity is not even spoken of. Heaven's not even spoken of. They just, they talk about the person or they talk about, I, I don't know. I just feel that they have had such an opportunity to witness for Jesus Christ, to let people know. Now, everybody's not going to accept it, but there could be just, even if there's just one or two, mm-hmm. maybe just one, that person brought to Jesus because of that sermon, because of that word of God being preached. That's wonderful. That's what it takes. And what an opportunity of a, of a, maybe this is where I feel sometimes I say this humbly, that my opportunity to let people know that Jesus loves them and that he's our Savior, it's an opportunity that I've had to give. Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, and every one of us should be looking for those opportunities when the Lord presents them and take advantage of them. And uh, that's a great legacy uh, that Homer left is, oh. is he took great, great uh, care with the opportunities he was given at funerals to preach the gospel. Um, When, when grief is not job related for you, but it's personal when loss comes home in your life, uh, how does that affect you? Um, How do you feel like your career as a funeral director has equipped you to maybe handle that personally better than others? Um, how or what circumstances has grief has grief or loss impacted you personally most deeply
3: well i grieve like other people too i grieve and i've lost some very wonderful well family members and all and, and i grieve and i know that they love jesus uh but to me it just makes me feel that I want to love Jesus all the more when death will come to me too. Mm -hmm. And I want to be a part of the life of Jesus. I don't know if that really answers your question or not, but um, I I am bothered sometimes when I know that maybe I've lost an opportunity to really witness Jesus Christ to somebody when I should have done that and I... Have regrets about that at times or sometimes, and but um, Jesus loves us and He gives us great opportunities to to um, witness His love. But
1: I was going to ask that specific question What do you think about your own death?
3: Oh, I, I want to live as long as I can, <laughs> but I also uh, I'm not afraid to die. Mm-hmm. Um, I um. Uh, you know, every morning I give God the glory and uh, and the thanks and ask for His wisdom to help me through the day. Mm-hmm. And um, um, my time of prayer is quite long in the morning and again at night, because. But I'm not afraid of death. No, I'm not afraid to die. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to. I don't want to leave those I love behind me, but I know that I will. And, and that's why it's important for me to also express my love for Jesus so that they can learn from that. Mm -hmm.
1: That's great. Yeah. Um, What advice would you give people who are walking with others who are grieving. You had some interesting things to say about this, some things that you shouldn't say, some things that you should do. Um, How how do people walk with grieving people well? What advice would you give?
3: Well, the best way is to listen, to listen to what they have to say and uh, know that you love them and that you care. And don't hesitate to Tell them that Jesus loves them. You know, I I feel that we have great opportunities when we walk with people that are hurting to go a step further and and let them know about God's love and, and peace and uh, and you know and and if you need to cry with them, shed tears with them, and. Um, that I think people understand that you care more than anything. but. Um,
1: what are some of the worst things you've heard people tell other people who are grieving, things that you would say, don't say that, don't do that?
3: Well, one of the worst <laughs> things that can be said is simply, um, uh, and I hear it every once in a while, and then I heard a rebuttal on it one time, well, I know just how you feel, mm-hmm. and it's a very sudden death, and the grieving mother said with great expression and hurt no you do not know how i feel mm-hmm. and um you you don't know how anybody feels but you can care and you can love them and let them know that they're being loved and uh maybe a hug and uh, uh i um just um touch and it, just be to listen. It's just good to listen and then just let them know that your love is there.
1: I think you told me at one point, a lot of people tell people don't cry.
3: Oh, yeah. I hear that all the time. And my, I think I maybe told you, my sister was really brought that out to me. that when her husband died some years ago and, and Wanda and I were there to visit her one evening and we were visiting, we were all kind of crying. And Because we were talking about Dan, we all loved him. And uh, then Wilma continued to cry, and we just listened. And she said, you know, the thing that I love most about this evening, that you didn't tell me to stop crying. Hmm. Because she said, everybody always tells me to stop crying. And I assured her that that was okay to cry. And let them do their own talking and don't pay attention to that. They haven't been where you are and And it's okay to cry with people too, but um people are uncomfortable when people cry. they don't know what they want they don't know what to do mm-hmm. and i just be let it be let it be unless they're just going on a rampage and then of course <laughs> same. but if they're you know what kind of crying I'm talking about, yeah, it's okay.
1: Another thing I know I've been guilty of is just talking too much, just shut up right? You you said something interesting to me the other day. You said, they're not going to know what you said anyway. They're not going to remember what you said anyway. So just stop talking and be there.
3: Yes, I've always maintained that too. That The, the fact that you're there, they're going to remember that more than the fact that you stood there and talked with them and talked with them because they're not listening. And five minutes after you've left, they don't remember what was even said because their mind was not with it. But they will always remember that you were there to give them a hug. And I'm talking about during visitations and grieving and when you meet people that are grieving. Just just, just listen, you know, uh, going on and on and on isn't, uh, isn't going to help the situation any. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's all I got, Van. We're just at about an hour and a half. Can you oh. believe that? <laughs> people are going to really enjoy this. Uh-huh. Um you've got
3: uh kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. I have three grandchildren and one great-granddaughter. And they're going to love
1: uh they're going to love listening to this. I know. Anything you would specifically want to say to them. Um and even I mean the thing that's crazy about these podcasts is they're going to last they're going to outlast me. Like somebody might pull this thing up 75 years from now. And what what would you want any any of that future audience to hear?
3: To, to love Jesus. Hmm. To walk with Him because life will end and there's a better life than what we have here. And I don't know what it's like, but I don't think about what it's like hereafter. I'm just going to be there. Hmm. And it's because I love Jesus and He died on the cross and this week is... Particularly, that we remember that and that we worship that. And it's all about Jesus. And I think it's so important that, and the world is so much turmoil and so much unrest today, but we've got to step up and speak about Jesus. And that's it's the only way to go.
1: Amen. Sometimes in your career, you've done it with words, and a lot of times you've done it without words, right? Yes. And uh, what a great testimony. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, this is going to be a great
3: inspiration for a lot of people. Thanks, man. Thank you. Appreciate that very much, man.
0: to Christian Crusaders, 7401 University Avenue, Cedar Falls, Iowa 50613. In addition to our other podcasts, which I mentioned at the front of this episode, I want to mention two of our other ministry partners worth checking out. First, the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, equipping believers with the truth of God's word since 1922. Visit cedarfallsbibleconference.com for free access to previous conference content or for more information about upcoming events. Second is Power to Change Digital Strategies, an online ministry partnering volunteer Christian mentors with people around the world searching the internet for answers. If you or someone you know could benefit from an anonymous online conversation with a caring Christian adult, go to issuesiface.com. Or if you would like to be a volunteer Christian mentor, please visit p2cdigital.com. That's the letter P, the number 2, and the letter C, digital.com. See our episode notes for details and links, and remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. God's richest blessings to you, and thanks again for listening.